Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today in the podcast, our guest is Congresswoman Barbara Lee, my member of Congress, but that's not why she's on the show today. It's because we're having a bit of a Barbara Lee moment right now. Uh, We are marching towards war in the Middle East again, and as we remember, Barbara Lee was the only member of Congress to vote against authorizing the use of force in the days after 9-11. She called it a blank check. She proved she's proven to be right. And at home, who's Barbara Lee going to endorse for president? She is one of the leading progressive voices in the country. Uh, is she going to vote for Bernie? Is she going to vote for Elizabeth Warren? Is she going to vote for somebody else? She will explain all that during our conversation. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, my my congressional representative as a resident of Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Yeah, glad to be with you today, in spite of these um, grave circumstances yes. that we're faced with. We will, uh, we will get to the grave circumstances in a second, but I, first I wanted to uh, congratulate you. Uh, you got married on New Year's Eve. <laughs> yes, I did. Thank you What's very much. What's going on? Wow. <laughs> That is, uh, you retire, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Clyde Oden Jr. He's a retired pastor from Southern California, but you, he will be moving to the town. Yes, he's already moved, and I have uh, re-registered him to vote, so he's one of my newest constituents. <laughs> he is a Democrat? Everyone to agree. Is, is he a Democrat? Absolutely, okay. absolutely, <laughs> and has a history of social activism, very progressive. He's a wonderful person, and okay. I hope everyone gets to meet him. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, now let's talk about the serious stuff, what's going on in the in the Middle East right now as we're moving uh, we're on, on the brink of uh, serious armed conflict. Uh, um, but I wanted to review a couple of things for some history. In 2001, uh, just a few days after the 9-11 attacks, Congress passed uh, something called the Authorization for Use of Military Force Against Terrorists, uh, also known as the AUMF. And that was to, quote, uh, authorize the use of the United States armed forces against those responsible for the recent attacks launched against the United States, end quote. In other words, 9-11 attacks. Only one member of Congress, you, voted against it. And uh, in an op-ed you wrote for the Chronicle back then, you said that was, quote, a blank check for the pre- to the president. And it has been. Since then, three presidents have used the AUMF uh, to justify military action, 41 41 military operations in 19 countries since then. Uh, and, and most of them have nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. And that's what uh, President Trump just uh, used in part to justify killing uh, Qasem Soleimani. Um, what, I want to ask you, what is different about this moment now uh, compared to, uh, of course, back then and the other times that the, the AUMF has been used? Well, thank you very much. And, you know, uh, first of all, the 2001 AUMF, it was 60 words. And these 60 words provided, and the reason I voted against it was because it was so vague and it was so overly broad that it provided any president, uh, any uh legal the, the legal basis to at least justify any military action anywhere in the world forever. This set the stage for endless wars, and when you go back and look at those 60 words, you can see very clearly how uh, these 41 military actions, and this is, mind you, in a uh, declassified report. Imagine what it's like 
the real deal. Uh, and they say in 19 countries, again, declassified. But uh, there are many more operations that this has been used with. Uh, for. And so uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do since then is repeal the 2001 and 2002 Iraq resolution authorization to use force. What's different now is that we're not having a debate. At least then we had a couple of hours <laughs> to debate the uh, 2001 uh, authorization. Uh, I think it was maybe two hours, three hours, which was totally uh, not long enough to debate the costs and consequences of the uh, response to the horrific uh, events of 9-11. But having said that, this time uh, there's uh, nothing. Congress has been missing in action. This administration has unilaterally uh, used force, not only this time, but throughout the world, as did the prior president, as did uh, previous presidents since 2001. And so uh, we've got to uh, understand that uh, Congress has abdicated its responsibility. This is just another example of Congress not uh, living up to what the Constitution requires, and it's still missing in action. And uh, so a couple of things. You haven't seen the—you've been briefed on the intelligence yet. That's going to come tomorrow or the next day about— Tomorrow we'll be briefed uh, by the uh, intelligence okay, so, uh, folks and the Secretary of Defense. So we don't even know what— whether what was uh, the justification that the president is uh, is saying that, that that this needed to be done now? No, we don't know what the legal authority is. Some are saying it was the 2001 authorization. Some in the administration say in 2002. Others are saying Article Two uh, in terms of the imminent threat uh, authority that any president has in case of an imminent threat. But when you look at what the Pentagon issued in terms of their statement, they said any either future or further actions or threats. And so I have to question uh, what type of imminent threat they're talking about. When they submitted the report, uh, the War Powers Report, um, that was classified, which is unheard of. So we still don't know what uh, evidence or what intelligence they were operating under. And is this why we hear the, the, uh, the, the president and members of the administration referring to Soleimani, who is a general, as a, quote, terrorist, because that gives them more leeway, legal justification for any action they might have taken. Sure, and I don't think anyone is thinking that Soleimani was a good person. I mean, he has committed some horrific uh, uh, crimes and, and killings. So that's not the issue here as it relates to Congress's authority. This administration, first of all, uh, when you look at uh, assassinating other uh, officials, you don't want to set that standard in terms of our foreign and military policy, because that is uh, outside, really, of the rules of engagement in many respects, uh, because, you know, we have ways to deal with uh, heads of states and, and people that uh, we don't agree with, and that certainly is not through um, assassinations. And so diplomacy is the only way that we're going to ever see some uh, any semblance of peace and security uh, in the Middle East and throughout the world. So whatever they call him, however they type him, that's not the main issue right now. The issue is, are we safer? Are our American uh, citizens safer? Are our brave men and women, are they safer? Is our national security safer? And are people throughout the world uh, in the Middle East, uh, are they now uh, at more at risk for retaliation and more more death and destruction. I think that's the issue that we must address, and that is not 
the issue that this administration, I don't believe, considered. I mean, they come through with all of their scenarios, the worst possible, the most extreme, and of course assassinations and the use of force is the most extreme. You put that in front of a, um, of a person like Donald Trump, and what does he do? He jumps to the extreme and, and just moves forward with no consultation or authorization from uh, Congress, and that's very dangerous. Yeah, the president didn't even consult the, the, the top eight leaders in the in the Congress, nothing. What what can Congress do about this right now? You have uh, are, are one of the folks who's uh, introduced uh, a war powers resolution. Explain to that how this may curb any future uh, military action in Iran. Well, we're saying that he should not um, use force against Iran uh, or military conduct any military actions without uh, coming to Congress. Also, I'm trying to uh, make sure that we repeal the 2002 authorization to use force as it relates to Iraq. You know, that was passed and put into the uh, defense authorization bill. We had Republicans and Democrats voting for my amendment. And 20, uh, 2017, I believe, yeah. Yeah. Was, how many was it? Uh, it's in 20, 2017, a couple years ago, right? Is no, it, this is... year, this past uh, defense bill, just okay. recently. In the, in the past one as well, yes. Yeah, and uh, McConnell, of course, uh, probably under orders from the Trump administration, just stripped it out. And so we have a defense authorization bill with the uh, re- the amendments that would repeal the 2002 Iraq resolution taken out, just so they could, again, move forward with their uh, drumbeat to war. And so I'm going to try to uh, move that one once again. Uh, soon to try to repeal the 2002 and and indicate that uh, if you want to use force and if you want to conduct military actions, then you must come to Congress and debate the costs and consequences of a new authorization. But uh, do you get any sense that that this would go anywhere uh, in in a uh, Republican-controlled Senate? Uh, sure, it may get out of the House, but could it could it go anywhere in the Senate as long as McConnell's there? That's going to be up to the American people. The American people do not want a war with Iran. And the public has to weigh in and and put a check on this president. I think the public understands how he has used this office for personal gain. And this is his personal agenda. And he is not putting the country uh, as his first priority. And so once again, the Senate will only move when the public raises their voices and weighs in with for their members with their members of the Senate and hold them accountable. Do you think that the the challenge here is though that there's uh, you know we have a few more a few thousand more uh, military personnel going to the Middle East now uh, back in the the uh, rock war to 19 uh, years ago now um, you know we saw a lot of deployments this was actually touching American families does this still seem remote to people, uh, to, to American families. And is that going to be a challenge to get, you know, the public riled up about this? Well, I think, uh, first of all, the uh, movement of U.S. troops into the region, to me, is, is very dangerous. And our troops do everything that, they, that we ask them to do. But I'm concerned about the risks that they're faced with and, and what their mission is. What, what is the overall strategy? of this administration as it relates to uh, Iran and the Middle East. And so, you know, I am uh, not clear. I don't think many are clear on what this administration's strategy is. First, several months ago, they say they're going to remove troops from the region or, or from Iraq. And next thing you know, they're sending more troops to the region. I mean, this, these mixed messages 
uh, send a, a signal to our allies, especially, and to people in the region that, that this administration has no plan, they have no strategy, and in fact, they do not know what they is, are doing. And as the daughter of a 25-year veteran who worked, who uh, fought in two wars, I'm always concerned about our troops and the costs and consequences of them being in, inserted into a, uh, a war environment um, where Congress is not in the mix and where we do not know exactly what the mission and what the strategy is. And so uh, you, we've got to rein this administration in, and the public has got to let the senators know that this is not a time to, um, you know, put our troops in harm's way, given the the very lack, the, the lack of a strategy as it relates to this administration. You alluded to the president's, uh, that this is serving the president's personal agenda. Do you think this is like a wag the dog uh, type of scenario here? Do, do, do you think the president did this to, to distract from his impeachment? Well, several months ago, he uh, was withdrawing troops uh, or wanted to withdraw troops um, very impulsively, quite frankly, from Iraq. Now, all of a sudden, he wants to bring, uh, send more troops into the region. What what happened during that interim period? What uh, this timing is quite curious, and I would ask those questions as it relates to uh, the timing of this, because uh, we know that um, this president has been impeached. He is an impeached president, and uh, the rules of the uh, trial in the Senate are being discussed. And in fact, uh, this he's a master at uh, distractions. And I think those questions must be raised. We don't know what their overall intended goal has been, uh, because even um, within his administration, there's a heck of a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, discrepancies. And we really don't know who is doing what and making what decisions. Is there anything else Congress can do about this, about to, to curb the president's actions, to, to curb any any other military uh, incursion into the Middle East? Well, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, uh, I would want to see us to withhold funds uh, from the uh, Defense Department for any war or any military action that has not been authorized by Congress. And uh, we, sh- we should do that. We should uh, insist on that. And we should uh, force this administration, if they want the money, they should come to Congress and tell us why and debate this. Also, let me, let me mention uh, Secretary Pompeo, because I think what, one of the things we're missing in this is that he is the uh, Secretary of uh, State. His mission and role is um, to develop diplomatic strategies as it relates to conflict resolution, and as it relates to our security. Secretary Pompeo is acting like almost uh, a secretary of war in this instance. I am vice chair of the State and Foreign Operations Subcommittee, which funds all of our diplomatic initiatives and the State Department. And this is outrageous that the Secretary of State is not acting as a secretary of state. He should be in the process of putting together an overall uh, diplomatic strategy to help reduce the tensions and to try to make sure that um, there's some type of, or at least some semblance of uh, peace and security in the region and some semblance of diplomatic uh, efforts with our allies to try to get this under control. He's not doing that. He also should be 
clear about where this started in many respects, and that's pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, which, of course, he he uh, was supportive of. And uh, now you see what has happened. That that nuclear arrangement, and I worked very hard with the Obama administration and Speaker Pelosi and others on the JCPOA. It was working. The International uh, Atomic, all of our agencies, all of the verification uh, organizations said that Iran was complying with the nuclear agreement. Donald Trump pulls out of that. This is spiraling out of control, and now we see that, uh, for the most part, Iran wants to pull out and uh, begin enriching um, nuclear material again. And it's just outrageous what is taking place. So one action leads to another action. Is there anything your subcommittee can do uh, to, uh, you know, in terms of withholding funds for the State Department or something uh, to get uh, to uh, counteract what uh, your concerns about Pompeo? Sure. We're doing, uh, we're exploring every option right now. Uh, we haven't come to any conclusions yet, but believe you me, we're looking at what we can do to really uh, begin to put us on a diplomatic track and, and uh, hold Secretary Pompeo accountable. But, you know, his history uh, and his confirmation, I believe, really raised a lot of these questions about would he be uh, the actual Secretary of State or would he uh, have another agenda. And so we're working on a variety of options, but, again, the public has got to weigh in and insist as it relates to the Senate especially, that uh, these senators have to understand that we're on the brink of really uh, increasing uh, the increase of tension. Uh, the conflict is not being uh, addressed. It's being uh, enhanced. It's being further, um, it, it's further eroding right. our national security and uh, demand that uh, we get, uh, that we stop this and get back onto a diplomatic track. More of my conversation with Congresswoman Barbara Lee after this short break. And now, back to my conversation with Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Let's talk about the regime change in the United States. Um, uh, We have a presidential primary coming up in California in a couple months. You were OG in supporting uh, Senator Kamala Harris, your fellow Californian, your friend. Uh, she's no longer a, a candidate. And uh, now many Californians, especially progressives, are turning to you, one of the most progressive members of the House, a chair emeritus of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a former chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, for guidance. Who are you going to endorse now? <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Lita. <laughs> so you better come up with an answer. <laughs> at this point. I think we have some great candidates, and really, I'm listening to uh, all of them at this point, and uh, we'll see. Uh, I know what the polls are saying in terms of California, but I also know that, um, you know, we have some phenomenal candidates, and I'm so, right now, as a member of the DNC, not happy with the DNC, uh, because, you know, the, the whole money in politics and what happened with uh, Senator Harris in terms of the how Money drove the negative uh, uh, ads and the negative uh, stories and and uh, how, you know, in the end, we now have very few people of color. We have Mr. Yang, 
in the mix and Cory and Cory Booker, but I don't even think Senator Booker is going to be in this next uh, debate. Well, let's let's talk about that. Let's say that I want this is something I wanted to I want, I want to get to that in a second, but I want to go back to the endorsing because I'm not yeah, going to let so you off I'm the not, hook on right this. Right now, I'm not endorsing. But do you think you'll uh, endorse before the, the California primary? Joe, you will be the first to know. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is you a non-answer. But so I, I was, I got to say, and I, you're my uh, member of Congress, but I was frustrated with you. And I, I've told you this. Um, in 2016, you didn't endorse uh, Clinton or Sanders before the primary. Only Bay Area Democrat other than Pelosi. Um, and you said you wanted to be on the platform drafting committee. And uh, you told New York Magazine that when you were there, you were 97% of the time with, with the Bernie people. So why not endorse Bernie? He came out, he endorsed you uh, for your race, even though you didn't. Wait a minute, let me tell you something. That was the right decision for me then. Uh, when I had I uh, endorsed anyone in the primary, the likelihood of my being on that platform drafting committee would have been very low. Uh-huh. And in fact, we would not have had a Democratic Party platform as progressive as it was. And so I helped write that platform with Bernie and help negotiate it with the Clinton uh, members. And I think, and Bernie acknowledged, and at the Democratic Party convention, we had a unity reception with Bernie and Danny Glover and some of the Clinton people, and everyone said thank you for helping to make this platform uh, as progressive as it was. Had I endorsed prior to that, I never could have, and the Democrats still would have had a more moderate to conservative platform and i'm not saying i did that entire negotiation but i weighed into that and so i have to do this in a strategic way in terms of my involvement that really furthers the progressive agenda and as an african-american progressive woman that's a, a a space that i occupy that i think brings uh to the progressive movement uh some you know an an additional point of view and so I'm very um, careful in how I do this, and it's all to make sure that our progressive agenda moves forward uh, on behalf of, of all people. And we've got to consider all of the issues, and that's what I'm doing right now. And race and racial inequality, economic inequality, climate change, you know, gun safety, all of the big issues that we're dealing with um, – I'm dealing with here in in Congress, and I want to make sure the candidate, if I endorse, really gets it on all fronts. Do you think there are there people in the field that get it? Do you think there's potential? I think there's potential. I think most of them get it uh, intellectually, and all I, I could support whoever comes out of the convention right. uh, in a big way. So yeah, I think all of them get it, and uh, some get it more than others. But uh, you'll be the first to know. No, all right, I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. I, I'm telling you, I keep my word. <laughs> okay. uh, let's talk about the field. Let's go back to talk about this. There, there's going to be a debate next week, another debate. And as of now, only five quality candidates have qualified. Three men, two women, three of them older than 70, and all of them white. Um, Yang is, is might not even make it this time at this point. He, he still may, but as we're recording this. Uh, what message does that send to the Obama coalition of voters, uh, particularly women and people of color and uh, young voters? Is this going to be, you know, keep out, you going to dampen enthusiasm or turnout? What, what message does that send and how concerned are you about this? Well, I'm not a happy camper about this. As I said, I'm a member of the DNC and have been. And I've been, my role at the DNC has been to make the Democratic Party more inclusive, more progressive, and accepting um, issues around uh inclusion as it relates to racial equity 
and gender equity a priority. And when you establish rules, and I'm not saying this was the intended consequence, but when you establish rules that uh, become systemically discriminatory against people of color, then you've got to question your party and what, how they're making all these decisions, which I am doing each and every day. And so I don't like the message it's sending. But I tell you one thing, after the convention, I think Democrats understand the importance of not electing Donald Trump for a right. second term. And so I am going to be part of making sure that we register people to vote, that we do the uh outreach in a proper way where people really connect with the candidates and where they know that the Democrat is working for them and will be their voice uh, and try to roll back some of these terrible, because it's going to take a generation to roll back these Trump administration policies. About the the process here, explain to us what's uh, systematically discriminatory about the way that the candidates are being uh, sifted out in terms of the debates and such. Oh, boy. Well, when you look at the polling and who, who meets a certain threshold, well, listen, how many people of color get polled? <laughs> okay, how many low-income people get polled, and how are they being polled? So you're reducing the, the uh, sampling when you talk about polling as a polling data and the polling results as being the criteria. Mm-hmm. And then when you talk about money, you know, you've got a, a wealth gap in this kind of racial wealth gap when you look at the wealth gap as it relates to African-Americans and Latinx communities. I mean, it's huge. And so communities aren't able to contribute the kind of money that others can contribute. The, the white middle income people can contribute to these candidates. And so you're, you're, you've got barriers that are built in to the system that has been established. And I think we're seeing the results of those barriers. And I'm saying that's not... Uh, conscientious, conscious. I don't think anyone set up the system to deny people of color the right to participate throughout the primary, but I think this is the unintended consequence, and it's also not listening to those of us who were against a lot of the changes. So you didn't, uh, you didn't want you didn't like these changes it, about the, no, the, the qualifications about you have to have a certain number of voters or a certain number of donors from a certain number of states and you have to have uh, and hurt uh, certain percentage of the polls you you weren't for that no I don't think that's that's good and I don't think it is because that that systematically eliminates large groups of people and you see the large populations of people who are being eliminated. Are, are people of color. What's a fairer I mean, way to do this? What do you think would be a better well, like a solution to, to this? I, we have to talk about that. I think there are a lot fairer ways, but the first thing is we've got to get money out of this system in a way that makes it work for everyone. They're, you know, it's just, I mean, you look at how money can buy ads, how money can buy, oh, gosh, the message. <laughs> Yes. You know, how money can influence the outcome of elections. So I think we have to look at uh, overturning Citizens United. We lo- need to look at how uh, these uh, organizations, these IE committees, uh, expend their money and what, what that's about. So we have to start by looking at, at money as an influencer in politics and, and get it out in a way that's fair and reasonable. We know it's going to cost money to run for elections. So I'm yeah. not saying that, but we've got to level the playing field. So everybody has a shot at this right now. Everyone does not, Joe. It, they do not. And I have to, I mean, for me personally, as a member of the House leadership, right, and as a member of Congress, uh, as an African-American woman, 
to raise money for my dues, which is 500000 a year, I have to work 25 times harder than, than my colleagues to do this. And when you and, say your and, dues, what are you you're referring to? Yeah, well, we all, you know, we have to make sure that we elect Democrats because we want to keep the House and expand the number of Democrats. So we have to help. And so I have to help. And so I have to raise money so I can not only myself get reelected, but help other candidates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so for me to raise money, uh, being a black woman progressive is 10 times harder than it is for anybody else. And that's, again, part of this whole political system in this country and, and, and how uh, people are viewed and what have you. But yet I and I'm a team player and I'm, I do my job. And I'm going to continue raising money, and I thank everyone who has contributed to me, to my, uh, you know, campaign coffers to help other people win and to make sure that we have an agenda for the people, to make sure that that our district um, is well represented. But uh, I have, to, you know, and you can check with all uh, people of color in Congress, you know, um, our, our Latinx members, our African American members. You know, uh, a lot of our Asian Pacific American members, it takes a heck of a lot more to raise money mm-hmm. to be able to be competitive. And so I know from personal experience what is taking place in the political system. And so as a presidential uh, uh, candidate, good grief, that's manifested 20 times more. Yeah. So I want to ask you one more question about uh, media coverage. I know you've had some concerns about that. I, there's uh, There's a something called the G-Delt Project, which is an independent outfit. Uh, New York Times uses them on uh, to, to measure media coverage, and I've used them a bunch of times, too. Um, it measures uh, all mentions of the candidates on cable TV news, cable TV news shows and other, and other things. Now, uh, as of, uh, I think, uh, earlier today, yesterday, when I looked at this, Biden is, of course, far and away the leader. Kamala Harris still has more mentions than Buttigieg, and she's been out of the race for a month. Cory Booker has more mentions than Yang, yet Yang is on the debate stage. What what explains that? I mean, it's it's, a, it's a, again one slice of uh, of the media pie here. But what what does that say to you? And what are some of the concerns that you have about media coverage of the candidates? I have to see that. That's very interesting. Yeah, I don't I can, know. I'll, I'll shoot you a link to this. Yeah. yeah, I've got to see this because I don't know if it's money as an influencer. Uh, but but yet, what are your concerns about Kamala media coverage? Still being mentioned more so than uh, you know other candidates, and she's not in it. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that what that's saying. Again, I have to see how these uh, polling, how, how the polls are conducted, how these surveys are conducted. Who are they talking to, and just really what the uh, analytics are on this. But and do you, but media coverage in general? Do you have any concerns about what it's been like uh, for this for the Democratic primary? Yeah, well, when you look at how the media, for example, covered uh, Senator Harris, there was a period of time when she was at 5 and 6%, and she was not even in one story <laughs> uh, as a top-tier candidate. And that, to me, was just extremely, extremely uh, uh, demoralizing for many, because here she was uh, with the minimal amount of polling in certain communities, she was still uh, a top-tier candidate, and many, most of the reporting didn't even have her name in it. Mm. And, uh, and you can go back and look at all that. That was outrageous. Okay. Um, so where are you going on the honeymoon, by the way? Did you already go? or did, is this... <laughs> We're what's, what, you just get married? To... There's no honeymoon? What's, what's going trying on? Trying to stop 
this administration from taking us to that's war. A, that's and a terrible that's, honeymoon. That's a terrible honeymoon. <laughs> but that's that's what we have to do for the sake of the planet, for the sake of our children, for the sake of the the world. You know, the priority right now is trying to rein in this Trump administration and make sure we elect a Democrat to the White House. So that's kind of what um, both of us are doing right now. All right. Congresswoman uh, Barbara Lee, who, as you like to say, represents the wokest district in the nation. That's right. And I want to encourage everyone to stay woke because this is going to be a very uh, defining year for the planet. Okay. Thank you for being on. It's all political. It's good talking to you. Thanks a lot. Good talking to you. Bye-bye. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Lee for joining us from Washington, D.C. today. I'd like to thank the king. King Kaufman, and the crate one, Karen Creighton, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you live in Oakland or just wish you did, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.